It was about a year ago that I uh, became a Canadian citizen. Uh, my mother was Canadian, and so she would have been very proud of me. And uh, it's been actually an interesting year to be a Canadian. Uh, becoming a Canadian, though, means now that I'm a, I'm a dual citizen, and so I have allegiance in two different countries. And there are certain days that my Canadian side feels like I want to uh, focus on Canadian politics and Canadian culture, and there are other days where my American side wants to focus on American politics and American culture. And so you can understand why this last week, the American side of me was particularly interested in what was going on in Washington, D.C. Uh, Joe Biden became the new president of the United States, and I've always been interested in the inauguration of a new president. It's a, it's a pretty formal affair. It, it's gotten more kingly uh, or regal in the years that I've been alive. And, and now they do you know, huge events and lights everywhere and flags everywhere, and all sorts of stuff. And usually people can gather on the Washington Mall and there are thousands and thousands of them there. What they do in inauguration though, it is pretty standard. It's, um, the president comes forward, or the new president comes forward, and he has to take an oath of office. And the oath is issued by a Supreme Court justice. And he, you know, they raise their right hand, they put their hand often on the Bible or some other, you know, some other representative book for them, and then they they give their their oath. And at the end, uh, they are congratulated as the 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 president now of the United States. Now that doesn't mean that prior to that they weren't acting like president. They they were. It's just at this moment they were recognized and affirmed as such. The baptism of Jesus in Luke's gospel really serves serves in, in many ways like an inauguration. It. It reads that way. It comes at a point in the book where Jesus has already been involved in a little bit of ministry. He's been doing a few things here and there. So he's already uh, the Messiah. I mean, the promises and things were given to, uh, to his parents when he was, when, before he was born. And uh, then he started acting like it. But it's at the baptism of Jesus where there is this kind of confirmation and where God himself, the great Supreme Court Justice God, confers upon his son, uh, affirming and confirming words. So this passage is what we're going to study today, Luke 3, verses 21 to 22. And just like in any, any uh, inauguration, part of the message is, okay, so here's a new president, and here's what they're going to be doing. So they give an address. Here's what we're going to do in the next number of years. This is what our, we're going to focus on in the next number of years. So Joe Biden's was all about unity and those sorts of things. In this short little passage, you also learn some of the stuff that Jesus is going to be doing, like who he's going to be, how people are going to recognize him, what his ministry is going to look like. So I want to focus on those things and uh, three things, in fact, that uh, he will be and he will do. Number one, he, he will turn to prayer. Second, he will rule as king. And third, he will serve as son. So turn to prayer, rule as king, serve as son. Here's the first one. So each time we go through each one of those points, I just want to read the text. Only two verses, right? 20, 21, 22 of Luke chapter 3. And so here's the first point that I want to make. Uh, he will turn to prayer. Verse 21, Luke chapter 3. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. 
And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. So that's, that's the whole story for Luke. It's really short. The other gospels that include this story have more to say. They're longer. They get involved a, a little bit with uh, how the crowd sees, sees this, how, how, uh, how John and Jesus have some inner, interplay. But this is just a really, really short passage. And I want to focus on a couple things there. And first of all, it says all, all the people were being baptized. And that's drawing our attention to what happened just before. You've got to remember that all the people who were coming out from the cities to see this kind of crackpot John, who was wearing weird clothes and was declaring uh, what he called a, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So in other words, you've got come out to the wilderness, be baptized so that you identify with my message, which is a kind of red carpet message for, for, for the Messiah. So I'm preaching this message, side with me as a sign that when the Messiah comes, you're going to be siding, siding with him. And so people were coming in droves and they, and they were all coming out and being baptized by John. And in the midst of all of those baptisms, it says that Jesus was baptized too. Now, there should be a question in your mind really quickly there. Why would Jesus, who is said to be sinless, I mean, that the Christian church has always held that view. Why would Jesus, who is said to be sinless, have to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins? <laughs> it doesn't seem to be right. You'd think that in this case, he would be like, no, 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 I don't need this baptism. So, you know, John, you should baptize all these people because they're sinners, but not, not me. Well, it's probably because Jesus is trying to, by being baptized, um, side or identify with John's both message and the people who are being baptized by him. So he's basically saying, listen, I, I don't, I'm, this is not actually, this baptism is not totally appropriate for me, but I'm going to go through it so that I can identify with these people so that you'll know that I'm on their side and they are on mine and that we, we are together. I mean, maybe the best way to kind of give that picture is uh, Martin Luther King, Back in the 1960s, of course, the great civil rights leader, uh, he, of course, would lead these, these marches for um, civil rights activists, and most of the marches were made up of African-American people. And of course they were, because racism was a, a, a huge issue, and segregation was a huge issue. You couldn't drink from the same water fountain if you were a black person and, and, and a white person. So. Um, this whole separate but equal thing was wrong, and so they, King and his, his followers all got together and they would march, you know, to Washington, or they'd, they'd engage in some sort of civil disobedience. Now, there were a bunch of white people who would come and join them as well. Now, they weren't, the white people were not the object of scorn like the black people, but they were joining in together as a sign of solidarity. It's a sign of saying, yes, I'm with Dr. King. That's, that seems to be what Jesus is doing here. He's siding in solidarity with the people and saying, look, I don't, I don't need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, but I, I want to be baptized so that you guys can see that we're together in, in this. But the little phrase that's really important in this, in this little passage is, um, as he was praying, 
as he was praying, heaven was opened. Now, that's interesting because if you put Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel up next to Luke's gospel, these are what we call the synoptic gospels, then Matthew and Mark don't include anything about prayer. Even John, when he kind of talks a bit about this, doesn't include anything about prayer. Luke is the only one who mentions that Jesus was praying. And so when that happens, you've got to look at that and think, huh, I wonder why Luke is adding that. And when you go through Luke's gospel, one of the things that you learn very quickly is that Luke loves to talk about Jesus praying. It's a massive theme for him. So let me give you, I'm just going to give you three different passages to try to prove one point. And the point is that whenever something really important was happening in the life of Jesus, so in this case, his baptism, and in other cases, as you'll see other things, whenever something really important was happening in the life of Jesus, it seemed to be couched in prayer. Jesus, the Son of God, was praying right before it took place. So uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 12, uh, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to, to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. And so here he is going to choose the 12 apostles who, who are going to, quite honestly, according to the scriptures, you know, have eternal uh, significance. They're going to sit on 12 thrones of Israel, ruling the nations. So he's going to make this massive choice among his followers to choose these apostles. And prior to it, he, he spends the night in prayer. In Luke 9, verse 28, you said about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. So this is a, this is a story called the transfiguration. We're kind of like the, the layers of heaven are pulled back and you get to see Jesus for who he really is. And then Elijah and Moses come down and they're meeting together with Jesus. And this is a huge moment in the book of Luke. And prior to it, Jesus was on the mountain praying with his disciples. Luke 22, verse 39, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. And on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you won't fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and he prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and He's about to go to the cross, like talk about the big moment. He's about to go to the cross and he is, he's appealing to God in prayer, sweating like drops of blood. I mean, thick sweat in, in anguish as he prays. You see the thread, right? You even get when he's on the cross, his last words were words of prayer, right? He said, Father, forgive them for not, they know not what they do, right? It is finished. All, all of that language is all about prayer. Jesus was constantly in, in reliance and communication with his, with his Father. So here's the point that you need to get from that. If even the Son of God 
needed to pray and rely on his relationship with his father to deal with life and decisions, if even the Son of God did that, shouldn't we? Like if there's ever anybody who didn't need perhaps to rely on his father for decisions and his ability to go through this life, it, it probably would have been Jesus, right? He's most powerful, equal to the father in, in all characteristics. I, I, you would think that he could be able to do this on his own. And yet what you find repeatedly in Luke's gospel is that he is appealing to the father for help. Reinstating and reinvigorating the relationship with his father over and over again. Now, we don't pray like that. <laughs> I mean, I think if you were really honest and you, asked, you answered the question, if I came to you in your house and said to you, look, what's your prayer life like? You'd be like, mm, I don't, um, hmm, would you like something to drink? <laughs> if you asked me the same question, I'd say, well, my prayer life is not as it ought to be. And I think one of the reasons that I don't pray as frequently as, as Jesus does and as consistently as he does is because I, I'm not as aware of my need as, as I ought to be. I don't think we are as aware of our need as we ought to do. We ought to be. We're kind of arrogant. Jesus was humble. So even though he was great, he said, I need, I need to pray and rely on the Father. You and I, we're arrogant. So even though we're not great, we say, we can go it alone. There are things in our culture that are really pushing us that direction, right? I don't know if you ever think about all the movies that we tend to watch uh, these days. One of the main kind of storylines is that there's one person who is going to be fighting back against the, the colossal mammoth alien horde, whatever, military coming against them. And he's got one knife. And the rest of the story is about how he uses this knife all over the place and he wins the battle and frees the people. Or the aliens are coming down through the sky and there's like a billion of them, but you know, he's got an arrow and he's gonna, he shoots them all. We love this story. We love the story of insurmountable odds against us and, and we, we strong human beings who have, you know, wear a tight leather America outfit and have an American shield. We have the ability to conquer all of it because of the, you know, undaunting power of the single human being. And we're repeatedly told this over and over again. We can do it. Whatever faces us, we can do it. Nothing can stop us. And in some ways, I totally get why it is that we like this. And it's, it's a good story in the sense that you know, it's trying to encourage us to persevere, even though in the face of all sorts of difficulties and obstacles. But there is a, a bad side to it, and that is the kind of hubris that comes with it, the kind of arrogance, the kind of snootiness that comes with it. Like, well, we can do anything. We human beings can do anything. This is a problem that's existed throughout all of history. And you remember in the early part of Scripture, you have a bunch of human beings trying to build a Tower of Babel build a, a, a giant tower into the sky to try, to try to prove how capable they were and how much they didn't need God or any, any of his help. This is something that, that we do. Um, you see movies where, where the fight scenes are 
crazy. They, 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 the, the one single guy gets punched in the face a thousand times, but he's still able to come in the end and, and handle things. I mean, those are the most ridiculous scenes, aren't they? I mean, I've, I've actually taken a punch before. Um, my wife got good and mad. I'm actually, cause she's not, she, it wasn't from her, but, um, I've taken a punch before and man, it hurts. And if you, if you take one, the likelihood is that you're not gonna, you're not gonna be hopping right back up. If, if you get hit just right by the big guy, it's, it's, you know, you're, you're out down for the count. Uh, I've been put out of commission by s- the simple lack of sleep. I've traveled on airplanes before, and when I got to the other location, uh, you know, it was a 13-hour flight, and then you get there, and you're sitting in the airport, and, you know, all you want to do is go to sleep. You don't want anybody else around you. If you had to defend your goods from a thief in that moment, it would not happen. They could take anything from you. Which, of course, is the way it actually is. We think, and we're reinforced on films and stuff, that we're so powerful and so capable, and yet the reality is that all it takes is what? Being up for 30 hours and you're done. You're absolutely finished. All all it takes is a, a, a little virus to shut the entire world down. I was actually talking uh, on a leadership uh, group this last week, um, and I was talking to them about kind of the lessons that we as, as Christians ha- should, should be learning from this, this moment in our history. What has COVID ta- taught us as Christian people and in people in general? And one of the things that I was just reinforced saying over and over again is that what it's taught us is that we're really vulnerable. Like we're really vulnerable. This little tiny virus is able to control the world. They shut it down. There are even people saying that this isn't going to be the bad one. There's going, to be, there's going to be a worse one. And I think for the first time in a long time, a lot of people who have been, you know, metaphorically building up their Tower of Babel in their lives to say, I don't need God. I can go my own way. I can face all of the hordes of anything that's coming against me, and I will be, an, you know, I'll be the conqueror. I'm the captain of my own soul. People who say that have been re- realizing now, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're actually in great need of a great many things. But that message, that knowledge of our frailty, that's not bad news. That's actually, that's actually good news. There's an old author who, author who said that the greatest gift God could ever give a man is the knowledge of his own destitution. And that's true. The gift of seeing your ability in its real light, that you don't have it all together and that you are vulnerable, it is the thing that is going to push you towards seeking greater help. It's the thing that's going to make you aware that you need someone who is both powerful and able to care for you, who will take an interest in looking after you. If you don't have the knowledge of your frailty, you'll keep going down the path thinking you're strong enough to handle it. But the moment you get the knowledge of your frailty, you realize, I need a bigger help than I am myself. It's supposed to thrust you toward toward God. There is one, in fact, who has the power and the will to care for us. The, The passage that has been rolling through my mind over the last number of months and I can't get it out of my mind, is uh, in Isaiah chapter 40, 
where God is trying to remind the people of Israel that he is a God who's going to care for them despite all of the trouble and uh, difficulty that they've been through as a nation. Here's what he says in Isaiah 40, verse 27. He says, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Those are words that we say frequently. Where are you, Lord? Are you not paying attention? But do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So my big point here is that if you want to soar on the wings of eagles, if you know that you walk and, be, and are faint now, but you want, you want to walk and not be faint, you need to seek communion and relationship and reliance upon the one who gives that ability. We ought to pray, no matter what. We are not Jesus. We're far lesser than he is. And even he prayed in the midst of this life. Right, so I said there are three things that we're going to learn here. So I want to take another pass at the passage and focus on a couple other things. Jesus will turn to prayer. He also will rule as king. So, verse 21 again. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. Now listen, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now in Luke's version of this, it's, it sounds very much like God is saying this directly to Jesus. There's a big debate about who could hear it and who couldn't. In John's gospel, you find out that John the Baptist apparently could testify to this. But the focus here is on the words of the father to his son. And they are specifically focused on the son. Luke doesn't care about who could hear it and who couldn't hear it. The son could hear it, at least. And what the father says sounds really sweet, doesn't it? Doesn't that mean if you, if you had a father and he said this really kind phrase to you, you'd be encouraged. You're my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This sounds like something that you, you know, sit your little boys down on, on, on the chair and you know, you're, you're, you're going to encourage them because they struck out in baseball and you say to them, you're my son and I love you. I'm really pleased with you. And the son walks away. All right. And so it sounds like that's what's going on here. And yet it's actually not. <laughs> what the father is doing here is he's citing two passages from the Old Testament and he's kind of smushing them together. So when he says these words to Jesus, Jesus is supposed to reflect upon where those words come from in the Old Testament. It's what we call an allusion to what God had revealed in the past. And so here's the passages where we get these from. One is in Psalm chapter two, verse four. 
to 12. Uh, just listen, listen, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. So when the nations rise up and want to go against God, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath. And he says, I, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, and now here's the phrase that Luke is pointing out, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So you see the language there of the son coming to be the ruler. Nations arrayed against the son, and God in heaven laughs because he has brought forth his son to be the true king and, and ruler. So the same kind of idea is, is in the second passage that is reflected in what the father says to the son here. Isaiah 42 verse one says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Isn't that what's happening here? The spirit comes and is upon him. He's delighted in the son. You are my son, he says, as a reference to Psalm 2. I'm delighted in you as a reference to Isaiah 42. And in both passages, the emphasis is on the kingship of Jesus, that he will actually serve as judge to bring justice to the nations. Now, that's really important. He's going to be the true king of the world. There will be no king, no authority, no ruler who's able to just, just get away with it because there's no one who sits above them to hold them accountable. Because the son will. The son will. Which is really important to remember. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but back in the days where Stalin was uh, leading Russia, right? Soviet Union at the time. Joseph Stalin was a really mean guy. He used to, he, I mean, he rivaled Hitler in his ability to kill people. He sent uh, millions upon millions of people who didn't agree with him, just political dissidents, people who just, you know, maybe tweeted something that he didn't like. He sent them to, to Siberia, to, to the gulags. So if you were to stand up and over against uh, Stalin, you would be sent far away. I mean, he was like the, the ancient Twitter, just kidding. But he's, he sends them all, all away. And so what ended up happening is that people learned that they needed to applaud Stalin for everything he did. And in fact, if you stopped applauding, if you're like the first one to stop applauding, you might end up in a gulag. So there's these stories about how Stalin used to come into a room and everyone would stand and they'd start applauding. They'd start clapping, you know, standing ovation. And the standing ovations would last 10, 15, 20 minutes. And nobody would want to stop because the first person to stop might end up in a gulag. It's a story, in fact, where one guy finally just got so tired, he, he sat down. 
And as soon as he sat down, others, <coughs> others did it. Stalin took note of that person, and the guy the next week was in Siberia. Now, Stalin felt like he could do that kind of thing because there was no one who stood above him to judge him. He had all power. There were no questions. He was basically the king. And he could do whatever he wanted. And in Soviet Union at the time, the question, of course, was, is there ever going to be injustice over guys like, like Stalin? In Hitler's Germany, uh, the process that he took toward getting the Jews into concentration camps wasn't a direct one. It started with him saying, look, uh, we need to identify the Jewish businesses so that we know who's trying to rip us off. So the message used to come around all the time that the problem that we're having in our economy is the Jews and them trying to extract money from us because, we, because we're in debt to them, right? Their interest rates are too high. And so Hitler would say that and the people would agree and say, yes, the Jews are the bad things. And so what we need to do is identify the businesses that they run so that we can know who we're dealing with when we go into those businesses. And so they would have to put a massive yellow star of David on the front of their business. Well, after a while, they said, well, it's not just in businesses that we need to know that. We need to have that on people. I need to know who I'm dealing with. I need to know if it's a Jew that I'm dealing with. So I'm going to put a star of David on the shirts of people. And then, of course, on one fateful, horrible night, they collected all the people who had the Star of David on their shirts into a, into a, a, um, into a setting where they could all be together, into a ghetto. They walled it off, put guards around it, because we don't want those Jewish people to be out with us. And then, of course, it wasn't very long before those ghettos were emptied and all of those people were taken in stuffed trains to places like Auschwitz and Birkenau and other concentration camps, and they were gassed to death. Where's the justice in that? Oh, Hitler got his. Did he? He killed himself in the end. Where's the justice? Where's the justice for all those who sponsored and helped that along the path? What... Do they just, there's no, there's no ultimate justice? I mean, listen, I'm reading actually this book called American Dirt re recently, which is uh, about a Mexican drug cartels who just kill people at will, that they have the police in their pocket. And so they just go anywhere they want. If you want to stand over against the Mexican drug cartels, if you want to be, you know, a, a, a prosecutor who tries to bring them to court, or if you want to be a reporter who tries to stop them, your whole family will die. They will come and kill your whole family, and no one will do anything about it for fear that their family will die. Where's the justice? Where's the justice? Where's the justice about the residential schools in Canada? Where's the justice about the slave trade? that took place in the United States. And currently, where's the justice for racism and sexism? And where's the justice for lying and cheating and using your power to cripple people? It just honestly, after a while, you sit in this world and you're like, the leaders of the world do whatever they want and we are powerless to stop them. Who will hold them to account? You are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. 
That statement from God is saying that you are the king. You are the one who will fulfill the promises of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. You will come and you will, with a rod of iron, judge the nations. And there will be nobody, nobody who uses their power or cheats people or whatever who will not ultimately be held to account. And people like you and me need to hold that deep in our hearts, especially if we feel like we're powerless. And if we're the ones who think that we have the power, God will hold us account. The Son will hold us account. I said that there were three things that we learned here. Uh, he will turn to prayer. He will rule as king. And then finally, he will serve, he will serve as son. I'll read the passage again, verse 22 and 20, 21 and 22. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. It wasn't a dove. It was like a dove. The Spirit descends like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So let's, let's step back from the passage a minute and let's see the characters who are involved here. You have Jesus, who is called the Son. He's the one being baptized. You have the Holy Spirit, who is descending from heaven like a dove and resting upon him. And you have the Father speaking to the Son. So you have three persons, three distinct persons. The son is not the father. It's not like Jesus is talking to himself. Can you imagine? He's down there getting baptized. And as soon as he, you know, he jumps up into heaven and says, you are my son. And then he's back down. Thank you very much. It's not some sort of puppet play. You have the father, you have the son, and you have the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons distinct persons, all acting in distinct ways, and yet each one in Scripture is called God. Huh? So this is what we call the doctrine of the Trinity, and I know that we don't talk a lot about deep theological subjects in, in church all that often. I hope we do as much as it comes up in Scripture. And so here you have a place where you have it coming up in Scripture that we say God is, God is Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity that the church has held for years, means that there's one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God eternally existing in three distinct persons. God is one in essence and three in person. Okay? Now, this is hard for us to understand, and so lots and lots of us have tried to figure out over the years, okay, so there's got to be some sort of illustration that we can use for that. So here are some illustrations that people have tried to bring out to try to illustrate what the Trinity is like. Um, he's like water, because uh, water can exist in the form, right, of ice and water and steam, and, but all of it is H2O. So, so it's the same thing, just in different forms. So see, people say that. Problem is that's a heresy. It's called modalism. It's the idea that God is, can take on different forms of, 
of things, different modes of existence. No, they're all distinct, the three. Distinct in, distinctly three persons of one substance or of one essence. All right, so people say, oh, maybe that's not the best one. So here, here's another one. Uh, what about the fact that I'm like, I'm, I have different roles in this world. I, I am a husband, I am a father, and I'm a pastor. And so that's like God. God has these three different kind of manifestations of himself. Uh, the, you know, he's God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Right, modalism again. This is a heresy. Because uh, God is all one, Right? Uh, he, who, who exists in three distinct, distinct persons. He's not manifestations of the same single thing. He is three distinct, distinct persons. Uh, okay, how about an egg? Because you have an egg, it's got a shell, and then it's got a yolk, and then it's, then it's got the white inside of it, right? So three parts, uh, and it's all called an egg. Right, but all three of those parts are not one essence. So this is what we call tritheism. You've got three gods, because I can separate the, the egg, or sorry, the, the uh, yolk from, the, from, the, white, from, the, from the, the shell. So look, we could do this all day. Uh, I teach theology classes where I'm going into all of the details about all the different examples that are done like that, and they, none of them actually work. So I want to show you the one that does work. I have a friend who actually has this tattooed on the side of his arm. And uh, if you want a tattoo, kids, this is the one you should get. Uh, this is a great picture of what, it, what the, what the, Holy, what the uh, Trinity is. So you have the Father, who is not the Son, who is not the Holy Spirit, who is not the Father. See outside. But you have the Father, who is God, the Son, who is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. They are not each other, but they are all God. Three distinct persons. One in essence. So we start asking questions then. Oh, okay, fine. That's, that, that's what the scriptures say. Uh, it is mind-boggling, and there's a whole bunch of philosophy we could get into. The church throughout history has done it. What exactly does, does this mean? Um, well, it, it means that God is a, a triunity. Some people use that language. God, God is a forever eternal fellowship of friends. He's a community. One essence, but, but a community. That's the nature of God. And so when he makes people in his image, he makes them in the image of one who is a community. He makes us so that we need community. Um, it was not good for the man to be alone. That's in Genesis. Like everything else in the Genesis account, you know, God makes this, God makes this, God makes this, God makes this. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. The first time it says that something was not good is where it says that, uh, that uh, the man was made and it was not good for him to be, to be alone. When he made man, he made them male and female. He didn't need to do that, but he did. The image of God is seen in the community that we have with one another. He didn't just make one of us. He made us to function together 
with others. And so uh, this is what it means, fundamentally, what it means to be human. And so in movies like Castaway, remember that one where Tom Hanks gets really cut and he throws spears at fish? He gets stuck on, a, on an island in the middle of nowhere because of a plane crash. And he's out there for a long time, all alone, but he ends up creating a, a friend in, in Wilson the volleyball. <laughs> You know, he's got a face on him uh, from his, his own blood. And, and so he talks to Wilson all the time, which is a really good representation of the fact that you and I have to have somebody else around or we'll, or we'll break down. We, we will struggle a great, a great deal if we don't have somebody else around. I mean, if you sent me out on a desert island, eventually, after a long time, I would even want to come back and be, be with Freddie. I would even want to come back and spend a weekend with Ezra. We're made for that. We're made for community. In fact, I would say, this is a theory of mine, that one of the reasons that the COVID restrictions are so difficult for us, the reason that we struggle so much with what the government is asking us to do is that in some sense, they're asking us by, by staying away from other people, by keeping our distance and not having that kind of personal relation with lots and lots of different people, they're telling us to avoid community for which we are made. So they're asking us actually to be a little less than human, a little less than made in the image of God. And so there's no wonder why we're all breaking down. When you try to act like something that you're not, when you try to be less than human and you're human, you'll, you'll experience breakdown, mental breakdown, physical breakdown. Isn't that what we're seeing in the world today? And you might as well, they might as well ask you to fly. And you can, there are ways for you to fly. You can get one of those, you know, wing suits or whatever, jump off a cliff and keep going. But eventually, somehow breakdown will probably occur in the form of a rock. Or if you don't have the wingsuit, you, you jump off the cliff and, and you'll very quickly realize that breakdown's going to occur courtesy of gravity. You weren't made to do it. You, you weren't made to do it. And so in the end, the same thing. We weren't made to be separated from one another because we're made in the image of God and God is a community. And thus we are a community. So look, as I end all of this, this is what I want to really focus on when it comes to what the lessons are that we're learning at this particular time in the history of the church in the 21st century dealing with a global pandemic and the rules associated with how we're supposed to deal with it. Let this time be a lesson to us. Let, let the losing of our community be a spur to never take it for granted again. Let's never forsake godly friendships. Let's never forsake again the gathering of the church. Let's never forsake the deep joy we get when we are part of a team, whether that's a team at work or a sports field. Let's recognize how we rely upon and need one another. Let's rejoice to God that that's how we're made and let's walk into that, serving one another, loving one another, reflecting the community and the Trinity because that's how we're made, in the image of a triune God. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for uh, the way we're made, your image what's revealed about our Lord Jesus here and what he's going to do in the future from Luke's point of view and what he has become for us in the now. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see him as the son of the father who's indwelt by the spirit.
that you'd help us to see him as the king who rules over all, and that ultimately, Father, you'd help us to see and turn to him in prayer. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.